Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to learn more and sell more from your customer conversations, but you'll probably also learn how to start a business from my experts on the show today. And you'll see, I'll give you a bit more details in the next few minutes. So my guest today has been running both bootstrapped and VC back companies for the last 10 years plus. Uh, he's a YC or Y Combinator alumni. Uh, he's raised funding in the US and the UK. He's built products uh, used globally by brands like Sony and MTV. So he's quite a veteran when it comes to entrepreneurship and marketing uh, in general. Interestingly enough, he was a programmer who was forced to actually talk to customers. And while he knew he was supposed to talk to them, none of the books or none of the resources he stumbled upon was helpful. So that's why he wrote the book, The Mom Test, which is really about how to get more learnings and more sales out of your customer conversations. So Rob Fitzpatrick, welcome aboard. Thank you very much for having me. So I know you've been talking about your book, The Mom Test, maybe hundreds, thousands of times on podcasts. So I want you to <laughs> spin things a bit differently together, right? So I've mentioned in the intro, you have a lot of experience when it comes to starting businesses. And it's interesting because a few times on the podcast, I like to ask a very specific question to my guests when I know they have what it takes to start companies because they've done it in the past multiple times. So I've asked the question that I'm going to ask you to guests, including Seth Godin or Rob Walling, that I'm sure you know both. I want to ask you this question as well, which is kind of a challenge and it might be, might be a bit tricky to answer, but I'm sure we'll find a way to do that. So imagine for a second that you are an animus person. Nobody knows about Rob Fitzpatrick. You haven't written a book. Uh, so you don't have a network uh, per se. You just have yourself and your knowledge that you have right now. And imagine I give you the challenge to create a successful company in six months or less with just $1,000 roughly in the bank and trying to generate maybe 10x that, so 10,000 plus in the next six months, right? So based on the experience and expertise you have right now, how would you do it? And step by step, starting with step one. So I think the most overlooked thing is to choose customers that you already understand and who you have access to. And by access to, I mean, you can pick up the phone and start calling them and they will at least answer the phone call and answer some of your questions. You know, it takes so much time to break into a customer group that you don't understand because you're like, okay, well, I'm starting from zero. How do I even get them to take a meeting with me? How do I even have this conversation? You know, there's so much. Like my first company, we were trying to break into the advertising industry and it took us two years just to understand stand enough to get taken seriously. Whereas if it's a group that you already have some sort of credibility and understanding and expertise with, you know, at least you speak their language. Um, and, and that makes it really quick, even if you don't actually know the individual people. Um, so step one would be choosing a customer group that I already understand. Then step two would be looking for either like potential partners or co-founders who already have some of the assets that I would need to build a business. So, for example, if it was, you know, for my customers, if they whatever, maybe I need a retail space. You know, it's a pain in the ass to go out and get your own retail space and set it up and renovate it. But if you can find someone who's already got it and who isn't using it fully, then you can figure out some sort of partnership and save yourself 12 months and 25 grand or whatever. Um, and you can do that both digitally and in the real world. Um, people always try to build everything from scratch themselves, but there's usually a way if you're credible and if you're thoughtful and if you understand what the partners are scared of, there's usually some way to partner with people who already have what you need. And then you're you know, able to hit the ground running a lot faster. So 
let's go back to step one. First of all, I enjoy the fact that you, you didn't, you weren't very scared of the question I asked you, which is good. It's a good sign. So identify well, I, people. I've done it before. I've been dead broke and like, okay, I have one month's worth of money. How am I going to pay my rent next month? You so know, there you go. Business can I start that'll pay my bills in 30 days? I've been through that a couple of times. <laughs> so that's why you're talking from experience, which is fantastic. So let's go back to step one and drill down a bit more. Get close, to, like basically talk to customers who could be close to you. So let's take an actual real example from your personal experience. Tell me about a time where you had to do that and what were the type of customers you had to reach out to? Let me make a comparison so that it's clearer. In my first company, we went through Y Combinator. We raised VC funding, really good investors. Some of the guys behind Index, like good top tier global investors. We had a lot of cash in our bank account and we were trying to break into the ad industry. We were trying to talk to like movie studios and music labels and creative agencies and all of this. And every meeting I wanted to get, I had to like get a warm intro and that was difficult, you know, just drilling down, figuring out who do I want to talk to? How do I get the intro? Then you go through the whole calendar dance. Then you sit down with them and you start asking stupid questions because you don't even know the basics, right? So st they're like, oh, who is this idiot asking me dumb stuff? Like, <laughs> and you've done all this work to talk to like a VP at Sony or something. And now you've kind of like wasted it because you don't even know the basics. And then, so then my next company, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. Like that was a huge disadvantage to have to start all that from scratch. So I'd spent a lot of time in academia before I got into startups. I wanted to be a professor. So I was going through a PhD program. I didn't finish it because I dropped out to start my business, but I kind of understood that world. I liked hanging out with professors. I, I knew how they thought. I liked being around universities. I'd done some like casual teaching work with a few universities just as a guest lecturer. So I, I had people I could call. So I was like, okay, well... I mean, I want to build something for universities. So all I had to do was literally walk onto universities. You know, you can go to a physical location like at UCL. I would hang out at the professor's bar. They have like a private bar just for PhD students and professors. And I would just post up at the bar. And when someone came up to order a beer, I'd be like, hey, weird question. But like, how do you guys handle blah, blah, blah? And I would just ask them. And really quickly, you're like, you're able to talk to people instantly because you kind of have access and you know their language. Yep, that makes total sense. So, but you're talking about uh, something that is quite scary, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. The fact that to go out of the building, as uh, as I'm not going to remember his name said, get out of the building and actually talk to people, right? So, uh, how would you convince people who like to program stuff in front of their computer and, and just post uh, things in forums and ask questions in forum in social media, but don't really tend to go out into the real world and talk to people directly? <laughs> And I've got, I got so many thoughts on this, but well, so I'm a programmer, right? I would much rather be programming, but it sucks a lot to program things that nobody uses. You spend like six months or 12 months pouring your heart and soul into a piece of software. And then it has like zero users. Like you don't even want to use it yourself. It's like, it's just terrible. It's heartbreaking. And so once you realize that by talking to people, you can build the correct software and by talking to people, you can launch the correct marketing campaigns and you can phrase it in the correct way and you can target it correctly. Suddenly you're like, oh, wow, I had two conversations, which weren't all that bad. And I just saved like a hundred thousand dollars worth of development time or marketing budget or whatever. Um, and suddenly it gets really exciting, you know, cause it's not like some tedious, busy work. Um, it's like, oh, wow, this is really enabling me. This is a superpower. And being able to do both, talking to customers and then also being able to program or talking to customers and also being able to directly turn that into a marketing campaign. There's so few people who have both sets of skills. Uh, and if you do, you're automatically like a superhero in both entrepreneurship and in traditional careers. Uh, so that's part of it. It's like the payoff is worth it. 
Um, another part of it is that people have the wrong thing in their head when they think of talking to customers. They tend to think of like when you're walking down the street and some charity mugger stops you and is like, hey, can I ask you a few questions? It'll only take a minute. And people hate that. They hate being stopped and interrupted. And so they think, but that's the only kind of interview they're they're familiar with. So they think it's going to be like that. But that is not it. If you're doing your customer interviews like that, you are doing them wrong and you're wasting the opportunity. Think about it like the way you try to talk to and understand your close friends. Like you wouldn't sit down with a close friend who just had a breakup and go, okay, so on a scale of one to five, how upset are you that you just got dumped? Like on a scale of one to five, how likely are you to have a regrettable rebound? It's like people don't talk to people like that, right? If you talk to your customers like that, you're an asshole. And you're not going to learn very much because you're treating them like a test subject, not like a human. The way we talk to our friends is we go, wow, you just got dumped. That sucks. Tell me everything. And you kind of want to talk to your customers the same way because ultimately they have a problem, right? Like the reason they're using your product is you create joy or you remove pain. You are trying to make their life better. And you're doing that because you care about their lives and you care about them. And if you can engage with them on that level, it's like, wow, you're a professor. You like don't have big enough budgets. You're asked to do a million things. You're like trying to help your students and you can't because of all this bureaucracy. That must suck. Tell me everything. They're just going to open up to you, right? People love having that conversation. It's not like you're exploiting them or tricking them or making them talk about something they don't want to talk about. You know, it's like a human conversation. It's good stuff. People love doing it. And if you see it that way, it's nowhere near so scary. People love talking about themselves, don't they? They do. So step one to summarize is really about understanding the type of people you gravitate towards, even if you think it's normal. I think this is one of the key things I've learned is, is people take for granted the network they currently have, and they always try to look beyond it because it's not sexy enough. The fact that they know all of those people, they want to go beyond, as you said, talking to the VP of Sony, VP of marketing at Sony or whatnot. But your own network has so much value, you don't realize it. Your uncle who works in this company or your aunt that works in this one, your cousin that you're close to, your friends, if you create a spreadsheet of all those people that you know, you'll be probably blown away by the amount of people you know and the amount of introduction you can get. And then, as you said, the second thing is you're probably interested in a lot of topics or at least one topic that is really close to your heart and you feel passionate about. And you might know a lot of people there. You might be part of a community there or a group or social events or whatnot. Those are the people you want to maybe focus on to create your first business or second business, right? Yeah, it, it helps a lot. It like immediately saves you one to two years worth of work by just beginning with customers you already understand. It makes everything else so much easier. Um, they have to also have money, right? And they have to also have problems. And there, there's like other criteria, like making a new kind of hacky sack for people who like to play hacky sack is like not going to be a breakthrough business probably, no matter how well you understand them. So should it be step two then? Like once you know the type of people that you gravitate towards, maybe the step two should be to understand whether they have money, whether they suffer from big problem. No, I think it's pretty obvious. Like it's right. self-evident as soon as you think about it, you don't need to even call it a step. It's just like when you look at your list of potential customers, you can very quickly rank them and you can do some ranking based on like, it's not just about the profitability. It's like, do they have problems that cost them money would be probably one of my criteria. Mm -hmm. Another one would be like, how much do I like spending time with them? Because you're going to end up spending a lot of time thinking about and being with people like your customers. So if you don't actually like them, um, that's going to suck. Uh, and then another one might be like, how actually easy are they to access? Like if you've already got a mailing list with a thousand of them on them, 
then I would consider that a pretty big head start. You know, that like those thousand people are really easy for you to access. Or if one of your buddies runs an industry event, or if like a company that you're friends with sponsors an industry event, all of those things give you a big head start in like ease of access. So for me, it's like, how much do I like them? How profitable could they be? Or like how much, how like urgent are their problems, that sort of thing. And like, how easy is my access? Right. So once you have this, this rough list, and let's repeat the, the, the filters again. I think this is going to be important for listeners to remember. So how easy or an access do you have? How painful is the problem they suffer from? And do they have access to, like, do they have money, basically? Is that, and do you like to hang out with them as well? Yeah, it's like, it's fun. If you have customers you like, then it, you know, it's just like, hey, let's meet at the bar and talk about your problems. It's like, yeah. all right, that's like not such a painful way to spend an hour. It doesn't feel like customer interviews or customer development. There's a lot of lingo around this concept of talking to people, right? Yeah, um, I always try to call them conversations. Like there's so much baggage tied up in the word interview. It's not like that at all. It's like, it's like, hey, you guys are losing money. Tell me about it. That must suck. Like maybe I can help. It's like, you know, you just talk to them. So that's step two, right? That's what you mentioned. Like you go where they hang out and talk to them, right? Well, I, I'm not, I'm going to resist putting it into steps because I don't think you can put this stuff into steps, but like you get a head start if you already understand and have access to your customers. Um, and then like what I mentioned is my second criteria was that, so you need customers you can access and then you need to create some way to serve them, right? Like you need to build the business, build the product. So like the other half of it, which gives you a big head start is if you can find business partners who already have some of the stuff that you would otherwise need to build yourself. And if there's some way to partner or collaborate with them, as opposed to starting it all from scratch, like everyone does their own content marketing and it's so hard and it takes so long. But like I once had a great business. It was doing a million dollars a year within a few months and we ended up having problems, but it was like, it was really good for like two years. Um, and the way it worked is I just partnered with someone who already had a mailing list of 300,000 people. And I was like, Hey, I've got a service that I think your mailing list would like, you've got a mailing list, but no, no way to monetize like, boom, let's make a million dollars a year out of thin air. And it was super simple. We were up and running in a matter of, you know, weeks. Uh, and if you can do that, like customers, you understand partners who already have the resources you need, you're just like, uh, I don't know. It like, I think based on your original question, which is how do you do it quickly? Uh, mm -hmm. that would be my answer. <laughs> Right. And, and is it, is it the way you've done it for the second business you mentioned, the one after the, uh, the ad business? No, like there's a big bias toward doing everything yourself. Like, so in that one, we were serving universities and basically helping them handle the IP transfer when they spun out student businesses. So like they have all this research inside the university and it's like a lot of legal overhead and a, a bureaucratic overhead for them to spin it out into external businesses. Um, so we gave them like a software suite and a smoother process and all of that. Um, and it was cool. We got a couple thousand student businesses spun out into standalone things. Um, but we ran into some other issues like the universities didn't have the budgets to make it scalable and for our particular use case. But in that case, we did most of it ourselves. Like I was writing the software and kind of leading the sales. And then the guy I chose as a co-founder was getting his PhD um, kind of in this domain within a top tier university. And so with him on board, he provided like the easy access to customers. Right. And that makes total sense. So as you said, if you want to do it quickly to repeat, it's about making sure that you get close to the customers you can have access to, uh, that you have a good, good knowledge of, that you like to hang out with, that have problems worth solving, that have money to solve those problems, or at least they're, they're losing money from those problems. Um, and then the second thing is look at partners. Don't try to do stuff on your own. 
don't try to 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 reinvent the wheel for everything uh, possible right starting content marketing from scratch or starting facebook advertising from scratch if you can have people <laughs> who can help you right and it's it's worth adding that in the end like partnerships tend to be unstable and in the end your partners will inevitably screw you over um <laughs> so you have to be prepared to screw them over faster like so basically what happens in a partnership is you both start making a lot of money and it's great for both of you and then you both realize that the other one is probably going to realize that they could make twice as much money if they cut you out and so you're both sort of like defensively forced into aggressively cutting each other out um so like if you partner with someone who has a, their own list and you're providing a service you have to assume that they're immediately trying to replicate your service um and so you have to start trying to replicate their list just because like it's really difficult for the partnership to last long term, but it can be a great way to run like the first year or two years to get a quick head start. Yeah, you get one million in revenue after a year and then you can think of not necessarily partner, partnering up but investing your, in your own channels to grow, right? Yeah. So I'm curious to hear an example from your own life right now based on those two steps, even though you don't really call them steps. But like, let's say you have zero, nothing in your bank account right now, but you still have the knowledge and the network you have. I'm just curious, who would you go after? What type of customers that, based on what you just uh, talked about, would you would you go after straight away? Well, OK, so if you look at the resources that you have, like as a person, you've basically got your skills, you've got the groups of customers that you have like insight about, and you've got, let's say, potential partners, both businesses and individuals. So you've got like people, you know, stuff you can do and potential business partners. And so one of the skills that I have that's valuable is teaching. So I, I'm pretty good with like a crowd, um, both like designing educational material or running events or acting as an MC or a host. Like that's a skill I bring to the table. The other skills I've got is like programming and writing. And so I would basically be like listing down my skills and then I'd go, okay, so these are the things I can bring to the table. And if I have other assets, I would list them. Like I have a blog with a few thousand email subscribers. So cool. That's an asset. I've got various code bases that I've half built. Okay. Those are assets. I'm like, okay, so these are all my assets and my skills and that stuff. And then I would look at the people I can partner with and go like, okay, what could I bring to them to make use of their assets? And so I would probably start with events just because events are much more, they're much quicker cash flow than programming. And also there's a lot of programmers who are better than me, whereas there's fewer teachers who are better than me, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. relative to my competition, I'm a better teacher than I am a programmer. Uh, and so that makes sense as the most like monetizable scale. So I'd be looking at everyone I know and go like, okay, do they have a community or do they have a list or do they have an asset or do they have an expertise, which if I wrap an event around it, I can make us both money in a hurry. Uh, and I would basically just like plow through my entire network going like, okay, who needs an event and or who needs teaching and work it like that. And then I would look for repeating like stuff that repeats, like maybe there's like a bunch of different people who need kind of the same thing. And it's like, okay, well, that's an opportunity to productize it either by like turning it into an actual literal product or by just hiring and training a delivery team who can then do what I was previously doing myself. And in either case, you've got a, a productized business, whether it's people or tech driven. So what do you mean by delivery team exactly? Oh, so in the case of teaching, it would be like training up a lead teacher and training up an events person and training up like an uh, like events project manager. It's just like all the, the people who do the task. This is the same way agencies work. Like imagine if you were a freelancer 
and then you start getting more clients than you can handle, you would start hiring people to do pieces of your job and you would train them up to do like one specific piece of what you used to do yourself. And over time, you would like build up a team underneath you doing more and more from like the simplest tasks upward as you move on to whatever strategy, finding new work, like whatever you feel relaxing, whatever's like worthy of your time. So you would start with a simple task, the simplest task and then move upwards is what you said, right? Yeah. When people delegate, I'm still terrible at this. And like, I keep getting screwed by it because I like try to delegate too aggressively and then nothing works. <laughs> um, but there's an excellent book called The E-Myth Revisited, which was mm -hmm. written in the 80s. And it's about like how to deal with this problem, basically in a human and process driven business, as opposed to a technology driven business. How do you turn the stuff that you're doing yourself into a re repeatable, simple, foolproof process and then train someone else? to do it and gradually build the team beneath you so that even though it's human driven, it runs very regularly and predictably. Yeah, this book is fantastic because it's really about processes and you basically write down all of the process you have in your head, right? How do I invite people to do everyone as marketers, for example? At the minute, I don't teach anyone, but if I had to, I would probably take a one pager, write, okay, I identify people who have good following, I identify people that a lot of listeners said I should uh, interview. I find a way to get the email address, I send them this email, I follow up if they haven't replied in two weeks, etc. So systems after systems after system is a good way to outsource the right way, right? Exactly. And people always want to delegate the thing that they're worst at, which I totally understand. But the argument this book makes, which I totally believe, having been screwed by making this mistake, is that you can't delegate it until you're already able to do it very well yourself. So you kind of work your way through the business, getting good at everything. And like, once you figure something out, then you can processize and delegate it. Um, but people always try to delegate too early and they delegate stuff they don't understand. Um, and then they inevitably get screwed because they can't manage it and they can't quality control it. World. And, and one, one small tip, uh, this is not where we, I want you to go in this interview, but that's still very interesting, is uh, to record video of yourself going through prof workflows. If, if, let's say if you want to outsource stuff to a virtual assistant to start with or an admin and stuff that you know how to do, you can record a very quick video from your screen using uh, tools like uh, Wistia has a tool called Subbox. And instead of having to write things, like, you know, long paragraph, just record your workflow on a video, send that to this person. Most of the time, this person will know exactly what to do. Um, I want to go back to what you said, because like, because I asked you the question again about the, giving me an example from how would you do it again uh, right now? And you talk about something you hadn't talked before, which is the skills, right? I don't find what you're very good at. And I think that's something people overlook. So do you have any tips for people to, how do you know what you're good at if you're struggling to find out what your top strengths are? And I have no idea, like certain skills are obviously monetizable, uh, like interface design and programming, assuming you're also a decent communicator and understand a little bit about business. Um, all of these skills, though, I think it was the Dilbert guy, Scott Adams, who made this observation that like any skill on its own is kind of a commodity. But if you can have a combination of two skills, then you start to become a bit rare. So like if you can program and write, then you can have like a good programming blog and that sort of like separates you. Um, or if you can program and you understand business, then you can be a technical consultant instead of just a commodity programmer. Like I've met marketers who are really good at crunching their numbers and they're just terrible communicators. Like, so they send reports to their clients, which the clients can't understand. I had a guy who used to pay me a thousand pounds an hour just to help him understand what his marketing agency was telling him. 
Like he was already paying a marketing agency and he could not understand their reports. So he hired me and like once a month I would have a beer with him and he'd give me a grand and I would just like help him understand the report that his stupid agency has sent because they were <laughs> shit at communications, right? Like, and if they had invested a bit more, um, this isn't really answering your question, but maybe it provides a strategy. Like for these marketers that were sending him the report, if they had invested more in communication, that would have acted as a multiplier skill and pushed them up from mid-tier pricing into being able to do top-tier pricing. You know, but like they had the core skill, the marketing, but they didn't have the enabling skill, the communication and visual design of nice reports. So maybe you can be a bit strategic about that. Be like, okay, I've got my core skill. I think probably you're aware of what your core skill is. Like, what is the best multiplier skill that I could intentionally develop alongside it? You know, is it design? Is it writing? Is it public speaking? Is it, you know, the communication ones are pretty huge, to be honest. People are just terrible at communication and it's really tragic. It is a tragic. It's tragic, but it's good for us, right? <laughs> so once you know your skills and the multipliers that go with it, And then you naturally went straight away into, okay, I would look at my list. Uh, therefore, event seems to be a good thing. I look at my list and, and maybe identify people who, who might be, uh, you know, who might need teaching or might need an event or, or whatnot. So how do you go about translating those, you know, I know my strengths to, I know which type of people I should contact. When I'm starting out a, a like a business. So my last couple of businesses have been mostly like B2B, like sales driven. And so when I'm starting out, you have like a list of potential customers who could go and whether you're trying to just learn from them or whether you're trying to sell to them or whatever, what I typically do, and I think I would do the same thing here is I rank people by friendliness as opposed to ranking them by their like profitability or potential, because I would rather make my mistakes early with the friendly people. Um, they're a lot more forgiving. You're allowed to ask much dumber questions when you're talking to someone friendly. So let's say that I wanted to run events for people who have large email newsletters. And if I have a friend with 5,000 subscribers and like someone I kind of know with 100,000, I would start with the friendly 5,000 because I'm going to be able to learn a lot in a safe environment from that person without burning my bridge with the big lead. And I can hopefully learn stuff there that's transferable to the person with the 100,000 person list. So it's like, People are always in a hurry to like close the deal, like close the partnership, close the sale, close the funding. But it tends to you tend to go much faster if at the beginning you, you you're not trying to close it and you're just trying to learn. You're like, okay, I'm not trying to raise investment from you, but I am trying to understand how the investment process works for businesses like mine. Can you explain to me where we'd need to get to and what milestones we'd need to hit? And you can kind of treat these early pitch conversations more like learning conversations by starting with the friendly ones first. Um, so that's probably what I would do. Uh, and then people always try to go like, okay, well, is it the best choice? Well, frankly, that's a stupid question because you don't need the best business. You just need a business that is good enough. Like if you have a business making a million dollars a year and you could have been making five million a year, then quite frankly, who cares? Because you've still created the financial breathing room that you need to survive whatever crisis you were originally in. And then you can like use that as the stepping stone to like the much bigger thing that comes next. So you don't need the optimal choice at first. You just need anything that works sufficiently well, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I think people tend to be paralyzed with the fact that they don't, have, they don't have all the data to make a decision, right? It's always this case of, oh, we need a bit more data to take this decision. We need a bit more data to, to, to know that. And they, they, feel, they, they, they are paralyzed to the point where they don't do what they're supposed to do instead of settling for good enough, knowing that they will never have all the answer. It's just better to just do something, even if it's shit the first time, because the second time you do it better and better and better. 
Yeah, and uh, this depends a bit on how much work is involved in trying. So, for example, even though I'm a programmer, you notice that if it comes to making quick money, none of my choices involve programming. You know, even though I've yeah. got that skill and that skill is valuable, just because to even try something when you're programming, it's going to take you at least a few weeks and probably more like a few months. And that makes your mistakes quite expensive, relatively speaking. Whereas if you're looking at like a joint venture thing or if you're looking at something that's sales driven or conversation driven or events like you can basically like the cost of failure is an email or a meeting in the worst case. And so when when that's the case, like it's so cheap to try stuff because it just takes a conversation. Uh, and then you can be a lot more aggressive about your willingness to make mistakes because they're so cheap. Uh, programming makes your mistakes more expensive. Same deal with retail. Like if you're opening a cafe, that's so scary because if you're wrong once, you're going to go bankrupt. Like you need everything to be perfect. Whereas if you can find some kind of business where you can do it conversations first, then your mistakes are very, very cheap. And it's likely that there will, way, there will be ways for you to break down this initial idea into something way less risky. So to take your example of, let's say, a cafe that you want to open up, maybe you should invest in, you know, those small stands that you can just wheel around the city, whatever, and get permit from the, the city council. Or maybe you can just monitor the traffic that the specific street gets and just start very, very small to validate some of the assumptions you have, right? And move up. So that, that removes the risk. But I very much like the way you classify that. So I'll try to summarize back and think back of what you said. So identify your core skills, identify your multipliers, uh, rank the people, you know, by type of friendliness, identify them, identify the ones who were related to the business you'd like to create the ones that, that you enjoy spending time with, the one that mostly have a pain point, and then try to run a business, try to start something with mistake that won't cost you a lot of money or time, which is kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. One way to think about it at the beginning is you could think about it as like, I need to create a gig or I need to create a project, like which generates money, obviously, if you need money. Um, but it's like sometimes business, we create a lot of mental overhead once we start thinking of something as a business instead of as like a project or a gig or an opportunity or a deal or whatever. Yeah, de-dermatizing the, the word business because, it, 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 as you said, it doesn't have to be a business. It can just be something small that, that just gets pinned up into something much bigger. Uh, that's what happened with this podcast, right? It was never supposed to be a podcast. just started with one interview on Skype and then I ended up doing a, a bit more and then I started to record them. And then here we are after <laughs> 100 interviews. It's pretty good. Okay. So I think I've squeezed enough knowledge of you into this first step of the question. I think with this knowledge, uh, people listening will understand how they can really generate revenue quite quickly by using their skills, the network they currently have and being smart about the people they choose to work with and also the type of ideas they should pursue. So thanks for going through this exercise with me, Rob. That was uh, quite insightful. And I, I think I'd like to just go to the second topic of today, which is very related. And we talked about it already, which is this concept of, you know, asking for feedback and the concept of your book, right? So let's say you're on the, the example you took before, like, let's say you want to create a business, a product for, for, for professors and PhD students and whatnot. And, and you talked about the scenario where you would go where they hang out and just talk to them. So maybe can you talk about the wrong way? And you already touched on that a bit, but can we talk about the wrong way to talk to those people in the first place? Yeah. So the, there's a couple mistakes. I guess the two I'll mention, one is beginning with the pitch is a huge mistake. And the other one's being too formal. So if I come to you and I go, I go, Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to meet me. Like I'm working on this incredible idea. It's like 
new software. It does this and this, and it's real time and it's big data and blah, blah, blah. What do you think? Like what you're going to say is like, wow, it sounds really cool. It's so innovative. Uh, let me know when it launches. Like, you know, I've kind of backed you into this rhetorical corner where you're forced to just say something nice. And that's kind of all you can say. Like very few people are going to go like, after you've pitched, they're going to go like, well, honestly, I just don't care at all about that problem. Like people just don't respond that way. And so when you open with the pitch, you kind of shut down useful feedback. Um, instead, what you're meant to do is be like, you want to ask people how they're already solving it and why they're doing it that way. So you wouldn't say like, hey, I'm reinventing, like spinning out student businesses. It's going to be incredible. It's got all these great features. Um, instead, you would say like, hey, listen, you guys spin out student businesses sometimes, right? And they'd go, yeah. And you go, can you talk me through that process? How does it work? Like, what goes wrong? Like, what's the worst thing that's ever happened? Like, why do you do it that way? Why haven't, have you looked into other ways of doing it? Have you ever tried doing it with software? Like, oh, that sounds, you know, like you never need to mention your own idea. You just need to try to better understand what they're already doing and why. Does that make sense as a distinction? Makes total sense. So yes, and, and that's something that happens quite a lot especially during, you know, startup events. Uh, I used to go to those a few years ago in the good old days. And it's insane that, yes, this is the only thing you hear. It's a pitch. And then people try to either sell it to you directly or try to understand whether you have feedback on the idea. And as you said, you're just cornered into it. Uh, instead, the way I like to, to talk about it as well is, is to act like a journalist, you know, to be just very curious about everything. A bit, a bit like we're doing in this podcast, right? I'm just, I'm not satisfied when you just give me an answer. I want to dig into it. So if you tell me, if I would interview you or understand or try to be the business for you, let's say you run events all the time, I would ask you, how do you run events and how and why and why and why? I just make <laughs> you talk, right? For an hour. And then I have yeah. everything I need without ever talking about a product that I have. And sometimes it only takes five minutes. Like people can be very clear sometimes you know you put them onto a topic they really care about and they're like oh that is the worst part of my day and it's like oh like tell me more why do you do it like that and they're just boom 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 and it comes out really quickly um so you you often don't even need like the hour calendar block you just need a couple minutes to chat with people um although this does require planning what you're trying to learn in advance so what i like to do is once a week i always plan like what are the three big things i'm trying to learn from any customers i happen to chat to um this particular week and it could be things like, oh, I would love to know like what they Googled for last time they tried to have this problem, you know, which I can then feed into my ad campaigns. Or it might be, you know, like, oh, I'd love to know why they aren't already using my competitors, like what has caused them to not purchase that product. So I'd like kind of like decide on my learning objectives ahead of time. Uh, and then when you meet people, you can go, hey, weird question, but like, why aren't you using this product? And they'll just tell you right then, you know, because it's about their life. They won't lie to you. Uh, where people lie to you is when you ask them for opinions about your product. So don't do that. <laughs> so from the example you just, gi you just gave, I never thought of this one uh, before the, the first question about asking what type of, uh, what did they search for in Google? And you can reuse that for ad campaigns. It's a very unscalable way to scale stuff, which is interesting. So from your experience, then what are the type of learnings you'd recommend listeners to, to focus on? So at the very beginning, you want to try to get to where you have a good mental model of what they are already doing and why. So for example, let's say they're still using an Excel spreadsheet and telephone calls and post-it notes. That's like their system. Well, okay. And you think like this is a common entrepreneur trap. They go, oh, wow, they're still using Excel and post-it notes. Like they need software. <laughs> and so you build a bunch of software and then they don't want it. 
And like, why? Well, because they like their Excel and their post-it notes. They're comfortable with that. It works for them. So you have to understand not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it that way. Like, why haven't they already upgraded to fancy software? Maybe there's some interesting constraint that you need to know about. So that's my number one learning goal is what are they already doing and why? What's their decision-making process? And you should kind of be able to talk through it. Like, you've got a good mental model of your customer's world. And then after that, it probably moves into like the more money-focused stuff like... What's their buying criteria, their decision making, their budgets? Like it's different with consumers because consumers will do a lot more like impulse buys. So it's like, okay, I, I don't know. Like the biggest one though is what are they already doing and why? If you've got that, you've got like 95% of what matters. And it sounds like it's it's even better if you can actually ask them to show you how they actually do stuff instead of just describing it, right? Uh yeah, it's not always possible. It depends on what you're trying to help them with. So if you were trying to improve the way people deal with email, then yeah, by all means, watch them do email. You're going to learn a ton. Uh, but there's lots of problems where that's just not practical. Um, and there's also cases, um, it's worth pointing out, like let's say you're building Uber like, or you're making the Segway or you're making a video game. These types of products do not solve explicit problems. Like everyone could still get a taxi before Uber came out. So there was no explicit problem. And like video games are a classic example. You can't go to someone and go, hey, do you like having fun? Like... There's just nothing to learn from that conversation. So in those cases where there's no clear problem, you have to build an actual prototype much sooner and just put it into people's hands. And then you kind of use conversations afterwards to understand what they did and didn't like. So that whereas if the problem's explicit and well-defined, then you can learn everything just from talking to people even before the product exists. Is the fact that when you can't really identify a problem, is it, is it more from a B2C perspective rather than a B2B, you think? It's both. There's things like, let's say you can save someone 6% on operational expenses. That's not like an explicit problem. They're not like, we desperately need to save 6% on operational expenses. But if you can go to them, it's like a nice to have. But if it's easy enough for them to install and use, and it doesn't like massively change their workflow, then they're like, hell yeah. So that's like a B2B nice to have. Whereas for consumers, yeah, a ton of stuff is is nice to have and much more like impulse buy or they don't need it, but they like it. And that's harder to learn from conversations. But that's where stuff like all the marketing experiments, like running fake AdWord campaigns and all of that stuff really comes into the forefront when it's these nice to haves for consumers. So let's talk about that a bit more then. Let's say, let's say you understand that the problem is not that obvious, but you have a, you have a hunch, you have a gut feeling that your, your idea, your prototype is, could be useful. So you, you said one thing, first of all, like build a prototype quite quickly and put that in the hands of potential people and just see how they react, right? Yeah. Like events are another example. Like you kind of can't really test an event. You, you just have to start selling tickets and see if people buy them. And so that's your, you know, that's like your prototype is like, all right, I haven't, screw it, it's an event. And like, if you sell enough tickets, then you build it afterwards. And the same is true, yeah, for video games, for most consumer phone apps. Um, there's a, a huge swath of things where you kind of need something to sell or to pitch before you can get anywhere. So talk to me about uh, the, the commitments uh, side of things. So I know it's difficult, first of all, to get to, to talk to someone once and then you know, how do you talk to this person again? Let's say now that your prototype has been built and now that your product or service is a bit more kind of defined, you know, building this relationship and asking for commitments, making sure that, that people, you know, reply to your emails and all of that. How do you deal with this? <laughs> well, so part of it is like, I think of the whole, okay. So the idea of commitments is that 
like if you pitch a product to someone, it's very hard to figure out whether they're a customer or whether they're just like saying nice things about it because they want to be polite. And it's like your challenge is like, okay, how do I distinguish between these two groups of people? Because I want to ignore the feedback that's just compliments and I want to obsess over the feedback that's from real potential customers. Uh, And so traditionally the way this works or the way I think about it is – you ask them for something that they will only give you if they're serious, which is usually their time, their reputation, or their money. So if I say like, hey, Lewis, I'm making this incredible software for podcasters. It's going to make your life easy. It cleans up your audio. It does automated marketing. It's great. And you're like, wow, that sounds so innovative. That's really cool. Okay, so this is, I'm now at the problem point, right? I'm like, okay, well, he said it's really cool, but does that mean it's a compliment or it's a commit? Like, what is it? Mm-hmm. So all I have to do is ask you for something that you'll only give me if you're serious. So I say, listen, it's not ready yet, but we're going to be starting our beta in a few months. If you want to put down a 10 euro deposit now, I'll make sure that you get a first access spot into the beta. You know, it's going to be a limited group. Like, what do you think? Do you want in? And mm-hmm. if you actually really care, you're going to be like, hell yeah, this is an important tool for me. Like, I absolutely want to try it. And I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not sure. Tr- it's not like some neuro linguistic whatever. It's not, I'm not like tricking you or trying to get your money if you don't want to give it to me. Rather, I'm just giving you a clear opportunity to do this small commitment to show me whether or not you're serious. In a B2B context, the main one is introduction. So if someone will introduce you to their boss, it's a sign that they're really serious. And you can treat them like a customer. Whereas if you go like, you're talking to them, they're like, oh, I love this. This is incredible. I really want it. You go, oh, well, listen, who else would need to sign off on this for you guys to be able to buy it? If they go, oh, like you need to talk to my boss, the legal team, the tech team. It's like, oh, well, will you make that introduction? I'd love to talk to your boss. If they go, oh, no, I really can't. All right. Well, they're not that serious or you're not good enough yet, but you can figure that out with a couple follow up questions. But just by asking for that introduction, like you're able to like because they might say, yeah, absolutely. Do you have 10 minutes now? We can go talk to him right now. You're like, "Okay, great. This guy's really serious. There's no money changing hands. But the fact that they've put their reputation on the line by making that intro, you can treat them like a customer. So time, reputation and money. Those are the three big ones. There's some others like basically anything someone wouldn't give you unless they're serious. So if someone tells you about their budgets, that's also a kind of secret information that they'll only give you if they're serious. So there's a few like edge cases like that. Hmm. Yeah, especially in B2B, the budget that the marketing team has. I realized, I realized afterwards, but as soon as you mentioned that, that this isn't something we would disclose until, yes, we are very interested in talking to people, understanding how much we have. It's a good question to ask as well. You're going so fast through every single topic I wanted to talk to you about that I'm struggling to find questions. No, I'm not struggling. <laughs> I have plenty of other stuff, but I'm, I'm curious. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about how to start a business the right way, how you do it again, how to ask for feedback properly, how to decide whether someone is, is worth talking to or interested in their stuff. I'm just curious. Is there one thing, a pet peeve of yours, something that you really hate? or do you really love talking about that we haven't covered in, uh, so far? Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about entrepreneurship somewhere in your career, right? Like maybe you're just doing a marketing job now, but you'd like to run your own business someday, or maybe you're already doing your own startup, you're working on it on the side, whatever. Um, so what I would encourage you is, is like a mindset shift. Um, I've noticed I did this myself and everyone does it. Like when you're in your first company or when you haven't started a company yet, you think you're only going to get one chance. It's this one shot mentality. Oh, it's my only company. So 
I have to make it work and it has to be perfect and it has to change the world. We put all these extra demands on ourselves because we think it's going to be our only one. Um, but if you can change your mindset and this is hard to do, but it's very powerful if you can pull it off, if you can change your mindset to think of entrepreneurship as a career, uh, where you're going to be able to start multiple companies, you know, maybe you go back to a job, maybe you try freelancing, maybe you start another business, whatever, everything changes. Cause like your first business doesn't need to change the world. Your first business can just sort out your finances or your first business can build some important skills or your first business can create your network by giving you a chance to work with a lot of great people. And then you can think of your entrepreneurial career as a series of stepping stones where it's not necessarily like my one big business, it's everything. It's like, oh, well, I did this project and I gained, remember we talked about our resources, our skills, our like communities, our, our insight, like all these resources that you bring to the table with each stepping stone, with each like stepping stone business, your pool of resources is getting bigger, which makes the next stepping stone can be even grander, even loftier. And businesses that would be really hard for you to start right now, after you've taken a couple of these stepping stone businesses, suddenly they're super easy because uh, you've already got all the resources, you know the people, you have the skills. Um, so if you can think about it a little bit longer term like that, um, and don't worry about like, how do I make a billion dollar unicorn for my first business? Rather be like, how do I make anything that's profitable that's within my reach? And then once you've done that, you go, okay, well, what next? Uh, and, and you keep going and you'll get much further than you you imagined you could have. Amen to that. I mean, I don't know if I consider myself to be an entrepreneur. Maybe I am, but definitely I started, you know, full-time job. My first full-time job as, as a marketer a few years ago, I left to create my first business, an agency that failed because I burned out, but I learned so much. And as you said, also created a big network. Now I have a full-time job that I very much love and this side project on the side. And I know that the second or third business I would create, if I ever create one, would be much, much better than the first one because all of, all of those elements. Yeah. And you can think this way about your skills as well. Like it's easy to look at, you know, like you look at me and you go, oh, well, he's got a blog and he can program and he can, he can talk and like, okay, but a few years ago I couldn't. And so whatever your skill set is now, if you think about what are the multiplier skills that I would love to have, that it seems unfair that other people have and I don't, was well, like, great, start building that, you know, <laughs> like, and then when you are ready to start your business in a few years, you'll like already have that, that unfair advantage. You know, it's like, you can't just turn these things on right now. Oh, and, and similarly, this will be like my last piece of unsolicited life advice because, but <laughs> co-founders are really, really important and no one pays enough attention to who they work with. And like people spend a lot of time dating because they want to make sure they marry the right person. Uh, and so they go on dates and they break up and they go through this whole process, right? Because they want their husband or wife to be the, the correct person. Um, and then when they're starting a company, they're just like, anyone else want to start a company? Okay, you seem good. And they, they go for it. But that's crazy. Um, and the dating equivalent of finding a co-founder is working on side projects together. So let's say that you're a marketer and you've got a buddy who's a programmer or a buddy who's a salesperson or a designer, whatever. And you think that someday they might make a good potential co-founder. We'll carve out a weekend and be like, okay, I bring marketing to the table. You bring your skill. What can we do in a weekend that would be fun? Um, and you might learn by the end of the weekend, like that's like a date. That's the equivalent of a date. But for co-founders, instead of relationships, you're like, wow, you're terrible. We hate each other. We should never do that again. And that's a great result. And you want to make those discoveries before you start the company rather than after you start the company. And it also gives you this chance to hone your skills. And it also builds a portfolio. 
which is useful whether you go the the entrepreneurial route or the uh, career route. So there, there's so many wonderful side effects to working on side projects with interesting people. Yeah, thanks for sharing this as well. It's quite interesting. I, I, I decided to go on my own for the first the business because I couldn't find the right person. I think yeah, I, it was a good choice in hindsight because I could have really chosen the wrong people. And I know a lot of people are doing still doing this mistake. Uh, so it's a great analogy. Um, I ask three questions to every single of my, uh, to every guest um, on the podcast, uh, Rob. So the first one is, uh, what do you think marketers should learn today uh, that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years or 50 years? I'm not sure. There's a lot of talk about the, the kind of data and programming stuff, which is certainly useful. I would have to say, though, being able to write coherently in a way which is understandable for people without your skills. Like if you can write in a way that the average uninformed small business owner can understand quickly, you know, without the jargon, without like all your acronyms and stuff, that's going to 10x your billing power as a marketer. So that would be my number one is like plain language communication of difficult topics. Uh, and you can practice it. It's, it's something learnable. Yeah, that's a good one. What are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners today to check out? Could be a book, podcast, uh, event, anything. I, I mean, my book is The Mom Test, which is good for having these like one-on-one -on -one customer conversations and learning from them. But apart from that, for me, the biggest one was um, meeting up with a group of other people who were working on the same types of problems that I was and meeting with them like once a week or once every two weeks and just swapping notes about like what we were trying, what was working, what wasn't working. Uh, and I think you can apply this to any interesting skill as well as to entrepreneurship in general. So if you're like, if you're really struggling to figure out whatever, say some new Instagram advertising system or whatever, if you can meet up with people who are also working on either just new ad systems in general or on that one in particular, and just like swap notes and case studies and what you tried and like look at each other's analytics dashboards. Like I, I think that learning from our peers in this kind of like structured intentional way uh, is really, really undervalued. Like people always like get a beer with their peers, but they're not like really swapping what they've learned. Uh, so I would set that up. I did that for years in London where once a week I would meet up with six people and we would just swap our notes and it was so, so valuable. Yeah. So that's one definitely incredible resource. And the first one was, was the book. So what would be your last one? Mm, I don't know. I mean, so much stuff's just a waste of time. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Go read a good fiction book or something. I don't know. We spent, I don't know. I, I'm like trying to like pull myself away from all the learning, right? Like I spent nice. so many years so deep in it. And it's like all of my waking hours were about, I must learn. I must engage with the community and all of that. And so like recent years, it's been like, I learned how to sail and I bought a sailboat and like, I spent a lot of time writing and I like learned to play ukulele. And I, I think that that stuff's a good counterbalance as well. Um, it's easy to get a bit too obsessed with our skill or our career. And it's like, you forget about the rest of life and doing the other living stuff. It'll make you better at your job as well. You know, it like, <laughs> it just makes you a better human. And then you get naturally better at your career as a, a side effect. So just do other shit, right? Yeah, do fun stuff. And some of the fun stuff that takes a bit of effort, you know, not just Netflix. <laughs> Uh, Rob, you've been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. I, I love talking to guests like you who are able to just, who just get the question very fast and are able to 
to deliver so many insights in, in every minute. So I think listeners have uh, enjoyed this one quite a lot. Uh, so where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? RobFitz.com is sort of like it has links and email addresses and whatever to everything else. So RobFitz.com and it links to my blog and then uh, MomTestBook.com. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, it's like 10 bucks for the ebook, so it's not going to break your bank. And it'll certainly make your, your customer conversations more valuable and more effective. Well, once again, Rob, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply 
Juma said your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.